Today's reading is John 4, 27 through 38. It's part of a larger story of Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman at a well. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. Don't you have a saying it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of the labor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So my question to you this morning is, have you had your vision checked lately? And I'm not, I'm not talking about your ability to read an eye chart. I'm asking about another type of vision. It's a way of seeing that many people, it's a way of seeing things that many people don't see in life. It's a way of seeing that Jesus talks about, and he describes it in the text read to us this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn it to John chapter 4, if you would, please. Turn in your Bibles to John 4. It's page 888 in the Bibles underneath your seat, if you would like to have one. In John chapter 4, we're going to be looking at this this morning, and the setting is that Jesus is traveling through Samaria. Now, even if you've never read the Bible, or you've maybe you're, you're, you know, you've never really trafficked in Christianity very much, and you're kind of new to all this, the mention of the word Samaria ought to at least ring a bell. Someone who stops and helps someone else fix a flat tire along the side of the road is called what? No, not AAA, the, a good Samaritan. <laughs> That'd be what my kids would answer. It's AAA, I got my card. A good Samaritan, right? We know, that, we know that term. We've used that. It's part of our culture to talk to, about someone being a good Samaritan. But it's interesting when you look at this text, there's something else we need to know about the Samaritans, and it's found in verse 9 of chapter 4. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John makes this comment, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, why is that? Well, this is where it's important to understand a little bit of Bible history. Under Solomon's rule, he was one of the greatest kings of Israel. Under Solomon's rule, there was a united kingdom. But with the advent of his two sons taking over, then the kingdom was divided. And the northern kingdom consisted of 12 tribes. It was known as Israel. Its capital was in Samaria. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. And it was two tribes. And its capital was in Jerusalem. So once you understand that in 922, you understand that things are going to get bad from that point on. Now in 721, 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria. Assyria conquered, they took most of the people into captivity, 
And then what they did was they colonized that northern area, the northern area of Israel. They colonized it with, with foreign people, people from their captive areas, Assyria's captive area. And it was largely Gentile foreigners. For the Jews who remained there in that northern kingdom, they ended up intermarrying with these foreign Gentiles, and they also ended up worshiping their gods. And that came with the intermarriage as well. 587 B.C., 586 B.C., the southern kingdom was captive, captured by, was overthrown by Babylon. And again, a lot of people, the influential people, were typically taken away, taken back to, to Babylon, because that way they couldn't stir up an insurrection. There were some people that were left there, but 70 years after being in captivity, a remnant of 43,000 people were allowed to go back to Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild the walls and rebuild the city. Well, the people of the northern kingdom opposed this. They opposed the rebuilding of Jerusalem, they opposed the rebuilding of the walls, and there was opposition that occurred there. The people of the southern kingdom resented their opposition, they resented their intermarriage, they didn't think they were being faithful to Yahweh, and they despised the fact that they were worshiping foreign gods. So with that little narration, you need to understand that this hostility began then and festered for the next 550 years. 550 years of a festering opposition. So when Jesus comes on to the scene in this incident that we looked at, that we heard read to us this morning from John chapter 4, and he's encountering a Samaritan woman, and John makes the comment, Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. Anybody that understood their biblical history said, oh, that's putting it mildly. So Jesus, it would be unheard of for Jesus, a Jew, to have anything to do with a Samaritan, and even less to do with a woman who was a Samaritan, because women had such low status in the first century. So Jesus is breaking all the norms, breaking all the rules in dealing with this outcast here at this well. Well, following his encounter with this Samaritan woman, the, the disciples arrive on the scene. Look, pick it up at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, one of the things I find to be very interesting, if you're reading through this or if you heard it read, when you heard it read the first time, John is a master at seemingly incidental detail. And he says in verse, he paints this beautiful portrait in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar. The woman leaves behind the symbol of her emptiness, of her empty life at the feet of Jesus, because what she has found now is more than enough. In finding Jesus, she has found the source of living water. And Jesus had said that to her in verse 10. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So she finds this living water in Jesus, and she's more than willing to leave her empty pot at her feet. And John is picking it up symbolically, saying, see, she has found the source of living water. She can afford to leave her water pot, her empty water pot, behind. Well, the disciples now urge Jesus to eat something. They've gone off to find something to eat, and that leads to an awkward exchange. 
Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, verse 31, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? I find that humorous, but... I just, you know, these guys are always kind of like, you know, they're just scratching their heads, which I think I would be too. I mean, I can't laugh at them. I would probably be doing the same thing. Well, you sent us off to get food. I mean, where did you go? You know, where did you go to get food? I mean, they don't have McDonald's or 7-Eleven or anything like that. So Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So it leads to this question. It leads to this question in verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Now, what's Jesus saying? Well, in using that phrase, he's referring to a proverb that they were familiar with. And this proverb is intended to reveal the disciples' expectations. He uses this proverb to reflect their view of the spiritual possibilities in Samaria. It's a maybe, someday, but not now view toward people. There are yet four months and then comes the harvest. That's all future. In other words, yes, I believe that God wants to transform lives. I believe that he can work in people, in the lives of people around me, but someday... It's optimism about God's working in the future, but not much expectation in the present. It's a someday but not now view of God. So Jesus challenges them to have a right now view about what God can do. Notice verse 35, he talks about the, the fields that are, are white for harvest. That's the present tense. He's saying it's, it's right now. And when Jesus is talking about the fields that are white under harvest, he's looking around where he's standing and he's seeing Samaritans. He's not talking about grapes. He's not talking about crops. He's talking about Samaritans. He's talking about people. Jesus is saying to them, look all around you. There are thousands of people like this woman. There are thousands of people around you with empty lives. Just look. Pay attention. They're everywhere around you. They're at your work. They're at the gym where you work out. They're connected to your kids' activities with all those activities that you fill your week with. They're at the coffee shop where you hang out. The, every place where, you're, where you find your life during the week, there are thousands of these types of people with empty lives, just like this woman, white under harvest. Jesus is saying, open your eyes and look at the fields from my perspective. Look at people from my perspective. The fields are white for harvest. So you see, Jesus is challenging the way that his disciples see people and possibilities. So here's my question. What might God want to do in the lives of the people we encounter each day? Have you thought about that recently? Is that one of the questions that you ask when you get up and you think about, today I have to do this, I have to talk to this person, I have to be at this place, I'm going to be meeting with this person? As you look at your Google Calendar, whatever kind of calendar you use, do you bring that question into play? What might God want to do in the lives of the people I encounter today? And then as you see their faces... As you're thinking about the people you're going to be meeting with and, or the possible, possible people you might be meeting with, 
Do those people's faces come into view and you think about that person, you think about what God might want to do in that person today? I have to be honest with you, that has not been my general way of operating for years. And I'm a pastor and I'm a claim to be a follower of Jesus. It's only been recently that that has really, that coin has kind of dropped for me that, that, that as I begin to go into a conversation and I'm engaged with someone, I'm looking at them and I'm looking in their eyes and I'm thinking the whole time what is it that God wants to do in this person's life. And I'm anticipating something. But that's only changed recently for me. It's makes, I'll tell you, it makes the conversations a lot more exciting because I don't have to be on, you know what I mean? I don't have to, I don't have to be the one that makes something happen. God is already at work. But it's the, it's the change of vision. It's the change of the way that I see people that has been so exciting for me. So it raises the question, do we see people through Jesus' right now perspective or do we see them through the lens of maybe someday but not now? And this raises the larger diagnostic question that I, I thought might be worth asking, and that is what keeps me, what keeps us from seeing people as Jesus describes? What keeps me, what keeps us from seeing people as Jesus describes? There may be many things, but two that came to mind are, I'll throw out to you. The first is this, an inability to live fully in the present. What keeps me, what perhaps keeps us from seeing people as Jesus describes? Number one, an inability to live fully in the present. And here's how this works. I think that we get caught between the past and the future, and it robs us of our ability to live fully in the present. We get caught between the past and the future, and it robs us of our ability to live fully in the present. And here's how this works. We can become enslaved to our shame and guilt over what we have done or failed to do in the past. Or we can become enslaved to our anxiety and fear over what might happen in the future. And I think that's where a lot of people live. They're either enslaved to the past, or they're enslaved to the future, or they're enslaved to both of them, and it robs them of their ability to live fully in the present. And Jesus says that he wants to give us life in the present. And what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't want to simply give us forgiveness for our past, nor does he want to simply give us assurance of safe passage in the future after we die. Yet that was a Christian message I was raised on. It was about dealing with your past and dealing with your future and very little emphasis on the present, on life in the present. And yet Jesus says in John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. Fullness of life, when? After you die? No, he says now. It's right now. Our lives are meant to be lived in the fullness of the life that Jesus gives to us right now. And what's interesting is that Jesus gives us this life, and as I tried to communicate last week, he gives us that life in order that we might be a source of life to others. That's where the present works out as well, is that he wants to pour his life into my life so that it, that it will overflow into the lives of others because he wants other people to receive that life. So to see the opportunities in the present, as Jesus is talking to his disciples about, I need to be living fully in the present. The second thing that I think that perhaps keeps me from seeing people as Jesus describes or might keep us from seeing people 
as Jesus describes, is what I call spiritual astigmatism. Spiritual astigmatism. Let me explain it this way. When I run in the morning, I don't wear my glasses for obvious reasons. I just don't want to risk my glasses being something happening. But as a, because of astigmatism, someone might drive by me and they might wave. And because of my astigmatism, I can see them waving, but I can't make out their face very clearly. And so oftentimes what happens is I give a perplexed wave back. Because I'm not sure, did they really wave at me? Were they waving or were they doing some other kind of gesture toward me? And I mean, so, so I will give this perplexed look, this perplexed wave back, and I'm convinced on more than one occasion, someone has said, he is not a very friendly person. Just because of my perplexity and it's not overflowing with warmth. Well, it is 6.30 in the morning, too, so... I mean, I, I'm not the warmest person at 6.30, but it, that, that astigmatism, with that astigmatism, I can see people, I just can't see them clearly. Now, I think it's possible to have spiritual astigmatism as well. You see people, but not clearly. Meaning not as Jesus describes them, or as Jesus sees them. And that's important because, you see, Jesus is the creator. Colossians 1.16 says that everything was created through him and for him. And Colossians 1.20 says that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. So when I look at people, all these people are people whom Jesus has made, and all these people are intended to be reconciled to God. That is his desire, to be reconciled to God through Christ. So no one is just neutral. No one is just like, oh, that person's tall, that person's short, that person's good-looking, that person's average. That's not, that's not the categories that Jesus uses. When Jesus looks at people, he sees people that he has made and people that he wants to reconcile to himself. The question is, do I see them that way? So it raises questions like these, and these are the ones that I wrote down. Do I see people as belonging to God? Do I see them as made in his image? That means that the hardest person you might have to deal with in your life, they may be living in your home, they may be at your work, they may be someplace else. The hardest person that you have to deal with in life is still someone who is made in God's image. Do I see them through the lens of God's love for them? Do I see them through the lens of God's desire to reconcile them to himself, not simply for them to go to heaven when they die, but enter into the fullness of life that he has for them right now? Do I see people through the lens of their potential to become fully alive, to become fully human through the life that Jesus gives? Do I see people through Jesus' deep longing to be in relationship with us? In Luke 13, 34, there's this wonderful scene where Jesus is coming over the top and he's looking down at the hill and he's looking down at Jerusalem and he's weeping and longing for Jerusalem and he, and he longs to gather the people, as he says, like a, a hen would gather her chicks under her wings. He says, but you would not have it. So we see in Jesus this deep longing for his, his people, this deep longing for people to gather them to himself and to reconcile. You know, I think... I think that if there were one thing that, that I or that we could pray for for our own life, I don't know if you pray for God to do things in your life, but if there's one thing that you could pray for that I think would be worth praying for is to pray that, that Jesus would give you his type of longing for people, the way that he longs for people to be reconciled to God, that 
he would give you, he would give us that kind of longing, that we would be so moved that we would find it hard at times to just be neutral towards people. We'd be so full of, of almost tears over our desire to see people's lives transformed by Jesus. What would that be like for you to be that way? What would it take for us to be that way? Jesus wants to answer that prayer. Do I see people through what they could become only through Jesus? Do I leave them to, uh, alone to think, oh yeah, they're so gifted, they're so talented, they're, they're so successful that I leave them alone because they have become these self-created people and I look up to them because of their prowess, because of their talent, because of their ability, and I go like, wow, you're successful. I, you know, yeah, it'd be nice if you could add Jesus onto it, but boy, you have really accomplished a lot. Do I see him through that lens or do I see him through what only Jesus could do in their life? Does that make sense? Do I have hope for them? Do I see people through the lens of God's love? And that sounds almost trite, but I have to bring it up. A verse that probably everybody who's been in a church or at least spent any time in Sunday school, John 3.16, it's like the one Bible verse that everybody knows because for years it was put in the end zones at all football games. It says that God loved the world so much that he gave his son. Do you want proof that God loves the people you and I are encountering every day? Do you want proof? Do you have doubts about that? Jesus. Jesus is the proof. For God loved the world so much that he gave his son. Jesus is the proof of God's extravagant love for people. Jesus is God's proof of his extravagant love for people that you and I may put in the category of someday but not now. Jesus is the proof of God's extravagant love for the people that we're around, people that perhaps we have put off in the future. So this is where it's helpful to read the Gospels, and I would encourage you to read the Gospels from the perspective of seeing how Jesus views people, and then allow that to shape the way that you see people. Jesus wants to do that in our lives. So Jesus' word to us this morning, I think, is this, that there's a harvest waiting all around us. So don't push it off into the future. Don't push it off into someday. I think that's his word that he wants us to hear together this morning. Because it's already here. He's saying just open your eyes to the people who are around you. Open your eyes, people like this woman that Jesus encounters, people all around us whose lives are empty. And yes, they may look like they got it all together. They may look like they're very successful, very attractive. They may look like, you know, they have really made it, but maybe they're deep down inside, there's a deep emptiness that only Jesus can fill. See, I think that we have to be convinced that all the stuff in this world is not going to take the place that only Jesus can fill. But if we're pursuing all the stuff in the world thinking that that can fill us, then we won't see other people that way. Does that make sense? See, unless you and I are convinced that only Jesus can fill and only Jesus can satisfy and only Jesus can give us what we were really made for and all the pursuits that we're using our short life on this earth for will never fully satisfy. Only Jesus can bring us into the place and the life that we are meant to have. Only if I become convinced of that for my life will I then 
bring that conviction into my relationships with other people. So I think that Jesus is telling us you don't have to wait for something special to happen. You simply have to notice people. And that's good news. And then just start talking to them. I found that all I need to do is start a conversation with people, treating them as people, which means looking at them in the eyes, treating them as people, so they sense that they deserve dignity. And I watch transformation take place in 30 seconds. Test it out this week. Test it out this week. In some of the most brief conversations you have that you often just say those are passing conversations, try it out. Engage the people. Notice them. Be present to them. Treat them with dignity. And watch what happens. It's amazing. I go out of stores just smiling all the time because it's just like, it, it works every time. You just treat people as people made in God's image and they sense something's different about you and they respond to it. So my friends, I believe that we are standing in a field that is white under harvest. More than ever, I believe that we are standing in a field that is white under harvest. The harvest is God's, but he wants to involve us. My question is, can you see it? Will we see it? Will we, as God's people, collectively see it and step into it with expectation? Thanks be to God.